So let me ask you a question. Could you ever imagine being a pediatric dentist, a dentist who only works on children, only treats kids, to later becoming one of the pioneers in cosmetic dentistry? I mean, think about it. This is the 1970s when most dentistry was like metal-based. I mean, silver or amalgam fillings, gold inlays, gold onlays, gold crowns. If you're a pediatric dentist, you're doing stainless steel crowns, right? Maybe you're doing porcelain fused to metal crowns, which back in the 70s and 80s were not really attractive, you know, not really beautiful restorations. But there were some early composite materials that our guest, Dr. Buddy Mopper, he got pretty good at doing in people's mouths. In fact, he got so good at the cosmetic dentistry that he stopped treating kids. In fact, he started treating the kids' moms and dads. Can you imagine? Dr. Buddy Mopper was one of the first dentists in the world to start using phosphoric acid to etch enamel. Now, this was work based on research by Bunicor, and he showed that we could actually stick dental materials or glue dental materials onto enamel that's been acid etched by phosphoric acid. And Dr. Buddy Mopper was one of the first adapters of using these materials. In today's Sharecast, in part one of our two-part series with Dr. Buddy Mopper, we're gonna learn things like how did Buddy become a dentist? Why and how? What led him into dentistry? And we're gonna learn about his journey into cosmetic dentistry and his sort of journey as a pioneer into this field in this world that is all super relevant to us today, but was not even in its infancy when Dr. Buddy Mopper was a pediatric dentist. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb. I hope you enjoy this Sharecast. Hello, Dental Online Trainers, Dr. Dennis Hartley, back with you again for one more of our Sharecasts. And today I'm thrilled, super excited to talk to my mentor, my former partner, someone that you probably already know, but I want to talk to Dr. Buddy Mopper today, and we're going to talk about some stuff that you probably don't know about his history and his background. So first of all, Buddy, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dennis. You're welcome. I know this uh, this whole technology thing isn't your your favorite thing. So thank you for <laughs> for getting through this. You're we'll so far so good. We're 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 doing good so far. Yeah, <laughs> Buddy, I know I know so much about you, but so many people don't. So I'm going to ask you some questions that you're going to say, Dennis. You already know this stuff, but I want everyone else to know about it. So. Buddy grew up in this small town called Correctionville, Iowa. What I don't know, Buddy, is how did Correctionville, Iowa get its name? It got its name because it had a line of correction that went through it in the county. They had correction lines, and they had a line that went through the main part of the town, through Main Street, and, and that's, what, that's why they called it Correctionville. That's how it got its name. What's a line of corrections? It's like where railroads would meet. Yeah, do. I looked it up also. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up on Google. They'll show it to you. I don't know exactly. All right. Okay. I, but that's, I, I what assume, it, that's how it got its name. I assume also, it's the longest name of a town in, in Iowa. It's 15 well, liters. <laughs> Iowa, Iowa has the shortest name of a, of a state. So you got the longest. That's right. And with two vowels in it. There you go. Iowa. I thought, well, you got three vowels, I-O-A. I, I-O-A, but it has two starting it. The only oh, yeah, two. Right. Yeah. I figured Correctionville came from, I figured you guys had penitentiaries there. I figured no, that there was not, like, none, none there. All right. <laughs> I almost started my own builder dreams. When I was a kid, I, we, we used to have to go walk about a mile and a half down to the, to the park through the cornfields to get to our baseball field. 
So we had a next to my house, I had an alfalfa field. So and we cut it down and made a baseball field. And then the police came after me and said, "What the hell did you do?" <laughs> so I got in trouble that way. But I was a little troublemaker in my day. But we we enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> When you were in Correctionville, your dad owned a market, correct? The, the he owned store. a, actually it was a general store. store at first for a long time, then he turned it into a, a, a small supermarket. So you grew up having the influence of your dad owning a business. Yes. And you're in the small town. What yeah. I don't know, buddy, is how did you get influence to get into dentistry? Where did that come from? It, it was by happenstance, okay? My parents, I was born with a... Uh, physician's kit. I think that's what they gave me, some, like a stethoscope and stuff like that. They thought I was going to be a doctor. Huh? And I was, I was pre-med in, in school. And during my um, second year of undergraduate work, I, took, uh, I had taken physics a year before in summer school. And then I took organic chemistry. And uh, I had a tough time with organic chemistry. It was at Drake. It wasn't at Iowa. So I dropped the course and took Russian intellectual history and geography. Did real well in that. And at the same time, I called my folks. They said, you better find yourself a job, okay? So I got a job at Methodist Hospital, and I worked in the recovery room. And I saw what was going on in the recovery room, the patients struggling, patients dying, and I really didn't like it very much. So I went back home, and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I don't think I'm going into medicine. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I think I want to go into advertising. He said, you better go back to school and find yourself another, another thing to do. So I had a friend of mine, Chuck Rosenbaum, who was going, was going to dental school at the University of Iowa. And I, I told him my problem. And Chuck says, come over to the dental school and take a look and see what you think. So I spent a, a, a day over there and things of that nature. I said, well, it's worth a try. Maybe you'll make my parents happy. And I applied to dental school. And the, in those days, they accepted 15 at a time. And I got accepted the first 15. And my parents, they were okay with it, but they weren't, they was, it wasn't a real doctor, but that was okay. But I got into dental school and I did well, but I found my, I, you know, I'm a pediatric dentist. And when we'll I went to yeah, we'll about that dentist, in a second. Well, before you, before you get into that, so you went to Iowa for undergrad? Yes. Okay. How many years did you go for undergrad? Were you three years or four three, years? Three okay. years. I got a BA degree in science at University of Iowa after my first year of dental school. Was that common back then that you'd go to undergrad for three years? It was in that, in there, the University of Tennessee had a different ball game. Uh, and uh, I think there were other schools that did that. We only had to do three years of undergraduate at the University of Iowa, and they gave us credit for the first year of dental school. Okay. When, when, you, were, when you were hanging out with your buddy, Rosenbaum, and you yeah. went and saw, what, what was it about dentistry that you said, you know what, I think I could do this, or this might be, be something I'd be interested in? Well, it was actually the attitude of the students there that I met some people there and I was very comfortable with the surroundings. I really didn't know, Dennis. I was trying to find myself and I was trying to make my dad happy. But it's just, just through happenstance, I got into dentistry. And I'd never, I'd been to dentists. I'd never had anything against dentists. But, you know, I thought I got to do something because I'm not going to, I'm not going to make them happy this way. So I did it for the, my parents, really, to tell you the truth, because yeah. they wanted a professional in the family. Yep. They've been hardworking stiffs in, in, in uh, their business. They didn't want me in that business. And so, you know, it's just something I said, you know, I'm going to try it. And I did. And it turned out unbelievable for me. Buddy, you, you hear this so much from young dentists, I mean, from everybody that they, and I think even 
Like, it seems to me like so many dentists come from one of two things, either their parents were dentists or they had, you know, maybe an uncle, they had someone influenced, right? And they go into dentistry, but so many people, they want to make their parents proud. Same thing. They don't want to go into medicine because they don't want to deal with, you know, people dying. They don't want to deal with all that stuff. Right. But they, they want to be in this profession. And I, I tell you, you hear it so often. And a, a lot from like kids who parents were immigrants and they want their kids to be successful. And dentistry is like this magnet for people who want to be in a professional career. Your story that you tell is so similar to what I hear from so many other people. Well, that's the way it happened with me. And I'll tell you, as a result, many people in my family, my niece, my nephew, their kids, they've gone into dentistry also right. as a result of it. Yeah. And I think that's so cool that you can influence people, right? Once you yes. see how much you love it. So if we're going to talk about how much you love it a little bit later. I think that's so cool because, buddy, I will tell you when I was a young dentist, and so I, I was practicing in Chicago, and I, I never talked to you about this, practicing in Chicago, and Buddy Mopper is up in Winnetka. And Buddy Mopper is like this icon, right? When I'm this young <laughs> dentist. And I would drive up to Winnetka and I'd look for Buddy Mopper's practice. And when you're a young dentist, you think, well, they had it different. They had it easy. They, you know, they, they were just natural. They, you know, you, you have all these sort of thoughts in your head. And the reality is that so many of us, we're going through the same thing, right? We're trying to figure out what we want to do. We're trying to make our parents happy. We're trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up someday. And, you know, you don't think that you're just like everybody else. You think that someone like Buddy Mopper, Buddy Mopper, when he was in the cradle, was going to be a dentist. That's what I would have thought. And yeah. so it's interesting having these conversations. Yeah. I think it helps people to hear that, you know, that, you know, yeah, it's just, it just, just happened and it, it was a great thing for me. Well, and I think it's a great thing for the profession. So not yes. just for you, but for the profession. I love the social aspects of dentistry. I just thought that your intimacy between the patient and and there's nothing like that patient uh, and, and uh, doctor relationship that you have in dentistry. It's so unique. It's unbelievable. That's what drew me in. When, uh, when I go see my physician, my doctor, he was kind of a jerk. And we'd, he'd, spend <laughs> a, you know, he'd spend one minute with us. And our dentist was a nice guy. And he'd spend time with us. And, and I was lucky I didn't have to have a lot of dentures as a little kid. So I wasn't scared of the dentist or any of that. And he was a great guy. And I thought, well, I could do that. He seems really nice. He seems happy. And I didn't want to deal with death and dying. And my doctor was kind of a jerk. So, you know, it seemed, seemed to make sense. So you went to Iowa. You went to Iowa Dental School. What was dental school like that? What years were you in dental school? I graduated in 1958. So I was, I, I was in 1958 to 19... got to think this out. <laughs> so late 50s and the 60s. Yeah, I know. I, I graduated in 62 from dental school. Then I graduated from... Uh, so, you know, you go back so far. I know, right? I know. I, I, I hear you. Well, I can just, we'll continue on that later on. We'll talk about Tell me what dental school was like back then. It was a completely different ballgame. First of all, it was more, it was more tedious. And uh, as a result, I think you learn skills unbelievably because the first thing we opened, we, we were in our lab, we opened up our case and there was a blacksmith's apron and uh, an iron cast. And 16 blocks of ivory, ivory, and we had to sculpt and make our own teeth that we could work on in operative dentistry the next semester. No way. Yes. So we had to, we had these bastard files. We had to file down the, the root and then carve the occlusal in this. Uh, 
and make our own teeth to do our operative dentistry on. It was work, let me tell you. Wow, that's it was not e- It was not easy, but it was a great teaching mechanism. Yeah. And it taught all kinds of things. The cast we had to polish like you couldn't believe. Iowa was tremendous. There was never a school that polished like Iowa. We polished everything. It started right out with polishing the cast before we put, made our teeth and polished them and things of that nature. And, wow. and that, was our, that was our lab the first semester. That's crazy. I've never heard that story before. So do you, still, do, you, do you have any of those teeth still around? I don't know. I think Joni has one or two here around. It. That's crazy. Oh, my so, God. It was so difficult. It was unbelievable. So literally, you had a hunk of ivory. You had to carve. Ivory. 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 What is ivory? It's, it was a, like a plastic, but it was like, I don't know what it is. I huh. look it up. I, I will. Know. That's what it was called, ivory. So then you had to carve a tooth out of ivory, and ivory. then those teeth you, you would do for the next semester. We, we, we made our own cast. We polished our own upper and lower cast, and those teeth, okay, we put eight upper, eight lower, and we put it in the cast so that we could do our operative dentistry and things of that nature the next semester. So you created your own type of dots. You guys that's made your exactly own type right. of dots. Holy that's shit. Exactly that's right. crazy. <laughs> that's nuts. I had no idea. I'd never heard that yeah, before. I mean, that's, that really it was wonderful, but it was, it taught you a lot. Yeah. You learned about, you really learned anatomy. Yes, we did. Yeah, no doubt. Wow. All right. So I was, I wasn't ready for that. That That's, that's <laughs> blowing my mind. That's so cool. Far different than what happens uh, when Hard I was in school. And then where you carved it out of whack. And this yeah. Yeah. Whole different ball game. All right. So what year did you actually start treating patients when you were in dental school? In our in our uh, junior year. And do you remember? Do you remember the very first dental procedure you did on a patient? No, I don't, Dennis. Okay. To tell you the truth, I I just remember that I had a hell of a tough time putting on rubber dam, and it wasn't easy, and I was scared, scared to death. But I don't remember the first patient, and I don't think the first patient want to remember me either. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Did you, were you guys numbing patients up back then? Yes, yes, okay. yes. I didn't have a tremor, but I tremored then when I gave my first injection. Who you. didn't? Who didn't, I, man? It was scared me to death, but I did it. You know. Same, same, same. <laughs> oh, yes. We no. always used anesthesia. And I'll tell you, we always sat down in those days. It was a very advanced school. Very, very progressive school. Because they, they felt that, you, you know, you're going to be in this a long time. You got to be comfortable. We sat down with our patients. They, I'll tell you this much, even when we went up to Pedo, they came down, got the, our, our instruments and stuff like that. We had an assistant up in pedi- pediatric dentistry. It was sort of, it was really a, an advanced school, to tell you the wow. truth. Did you guys get any experience in orthodontics when you guys were uh, at the- Very little. Yes. We, we had some Same courses, today. but we, we, I, did, I did some interceptive orthodontics when I was up in, in pediatric dentistry, okay? And I had a, had a very good mentor, uh, Dale Reddick, who I loved, who taught me a lot up there. And, uh, and I did a lot of interceptive up there. I, I want to talk about that in a second. I have a question I've never asked you. When you were in dental school, you were it was sort of a little bit of a crazy time in the United States because you're just getting out of Korean War and then you're sort of pre-Vietnam era. What was it like being a student when all that stuff's going on in the United States and stuff? What well, was- it, it, you know, it. Every war is bothersome, let me tell you. I hate war. 
but I got to tell you, I'm a very, I'm a real patriot. So mm -hmm. when I went into dental school, I, I knew I was going to go into the service. I always felt my dad served and I, I felt I should serve. And so they had a program called the Dents, Ensign 1925 program. And I enlisted in the Navy as a freshman. And that assured me that when I came out, I had to go through officer's training school my senior, senior year in the summer, okay, in Newport, Rhode Island. But that assured me that I would come out and I would be a naval dentist and I would serve two years, and which I did. Wars, I hate wars, but I, what's going on in this country? I, I don't I don't even want to get into that yeah, now. Yeah, good. All right. It's terrible. So did you go from dental school then? Did you go into do your naval service or did you go first to your pediatric program? No, and then They wanted me to go into the pediatric program and I felt I'd had it. I And I, I said they, they wanted me to apply then. I didn't. I uh, went into the Navy, and then I applied to the University of Iowa, University of Illinois for a, a position in pediatric dentistry after I came out of the service. Can I ask you about your Navy experience? It was wonderful. I served my wife and I. We were on Midway Island. Oh, I did not uh, know that. We were on Midway Island for uh, 18 months. Joni couldn't even get over there, and uh, but they, they had a job available at teaching. They had 600. That was a neat thing for me because they had 600 children on oh. the island. Uh, there were civilians or children of, of the uh, military. Mm -hmm. And so they had a teaching position opened up. And I called Joni and told her to contact the Office, uh, office of Overseas Opportunities. She got a job and she came out very early. We didn't have housing. We made two rooms VOQ for us. We lived in the bachelor's office quarters for, for six months. And they decided it was such a good idea. They'd do it for other people coming out huh? there. It was a great experience for us. We, it was wonderful. Out there. It's so small, a mile and two-tenths square, 3,500 people on it. And, you know, that, that had the, the airport there and things of that nature. And so we, we were there and then we were able to travel to the Orient. And we went to Hong Kong in 1963 huh? and, uh, and to Japan in 1963. It was 1962 when I graduated. All I right. knew I was right. And uh, we, it was last when Hong Kong was Hong Kong. Let me tell you, wow. it, was, it, was, it was a neat experience. And we went to Manila. So we traveled all over the world at very young age. And my military experience was great. And for me, it was great because I knew I was going to go to pediatric dentistry. So I, they said, the kids are yours. Do anything you can on them. And that's, Fantastic. Yeah. Do, how many other dentists uh, do you remember were there well, with you? Well, I had a good friend, Roger Triftauser, who ended up being, I think, the only dentist at least maybe only officer that made it to Admiral through the dental oh. reserve. Oh, no he, kidding. He had come through an intern, Navy internship. He was out there. Roger and I, I think one or two other dentists, we had uh, the technicians, assistants and things of that nature. It was a well-run clinic. It, it, we, 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 we had a great time and we serviced our, and I polished every amalgam I ever did out there. And it was, it was sort of neat. It really was. You know, amalgam was a thing in those days. Yeah, I, I've heard about amalgam. <laughs> for for our young young practitioners in our dental service that's that's the stuff that's silver in people's mouths in case you're not familiar a lot of people are still using it dentists. yeah i know yes they are so buddy when you started your pediatric program then so you did your two years in the service what what was it about treating kids that had that was in it for you like why do you want to be a pediatric dentist what was that about well, when i like i said in our senior year they take us up to pediatric dentistry and i just had a knack getting along with kids and I treated them more like adults than I did like kids I look around and all the all my contemporaries were having trouble I didn't have much trouble and I had a real great mentor I told you Dale Reddick who helped me a lot 
it clicked with me and it was, and I liked doing it. I, I could, I was able to work with stainless steel crowns and things of that nature. And, and I, 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 I placed amalgam and we had silicate. That's the only thing we had as a restorative material, right. but I used that. Okay. It just, it was my relationships with the children. I had a neck that, that was great. And I had very few criers. And when they did cry, we had methods to take care of them. They don't use them anymore now, but that's okay. I just got along with the kids beautifully. So that I, was the whole thing. I just said, had someone in the practice this week, buddy, and I can't remember who it was, but she said to say hi, because you had treated her kids and her kids are probably, they got to be, I don't know. I don't want to tell you. Probably years they're, old. they're probably 40 <laughs> or 50 years old. So probably <laughs> I treat a lot of them. <laughs> you went to Iowa. You had two years of doing, treating a ton of kids when you're at Midway. So it must've been just a walk in the park when you did your pediatric it was. program. I was, I was very advanced when I went to graduate school. As far as I did well in graduate school, I was a, a late bloomer. I kept doing better and better as I went higher in education. Okay. And uh, I just excelled later on as, as I went along. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was easy for me. Graduate school was easy for me, and especially the treatment aspect. I had one of my professors in dental school told me, Dennis, you want to be successful in dentistry, treat your kids like adults and treat your adults like children, and you'll be successful. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wise words, don't you think? Well, we had an understanding with the people, the mothers and fathers that came to our practice that, hey, if your child needs you, I'll have you in the room. But if it get, interferes with the progression of what I'm going to do in my relationship with the child, I have to, you have to leave. And that's what happened. And so most of the time we didn't have the parents in the room. I developed a relationship between the child and, and me, and, and it, it worked beautifully. We had very few patients that we ever had to take to the hospital because of, of management and things of that nature. Of course, we worked with disabilities of all kinds. Many times I had to go to the hospital for that. Right. When they would sedate these kids, how often were you guys doing, like in your program, did you guys have, was that a big part of your program was? Uh, I, did, I never did sedation in my program. Oh, really? Oh, no kidding. I didn't do it in my office. So then just general, you'd have uh, GA cases, uh, yes. general, general anesthesia cases where you'd have anesthesiologists. And then how often were you doing those types of cases when you were in your residency? Were those pretty common back then? Well, in, in the residency, I tell you the truth, they, they, we didn't do that many, you Not know, many. Okay. Didn't do that many. And then when I came out, I, you know, I was, I was a consul to and on staff at Illinois Masonic hospital and they had a program for kids with special needs and things of that nature. And they had kids coming from all over the country through the Masonic order and things of that nature. And so I was very involved in treating those kids at Illinois Sonic. And we, at the same time, we had residents there. I yeah. taught residents there for 16 years. Okay. And so that was a great experience for me also. So you went to um, University of Illinois, Chicago for your pediatric residency. Yes. Yes. Why'd you, why'd you pick Illinois? Because Joni was in uh, from Chicago no. and you wanted to get to Chicago? No, if I wanted a master's degree. University of Iowa wouldn't give me a master's degree. So I was going to all set to go back to Iowa. That they wouldn't give me a master's degree, and I didn't like that. And so on a on a whim, you won't believe this, I called the University of Illinois, and I got Tom Barber, who was a tremendous guy, on the phone, and I told him my plight. And this is all this was very close to you know either getting accepted or not. He says, "Come on down and talk to me." So I went downtown, talked to Tom. And it was a great experience. And my sister-in-law came with me. She comes in the door. She says, 
He says, you got to take this guy. You'll like this guy. This Myrna? This Myrna. <laughs> so Myrna is... This is uh, a true story. This is a true story. This is sister-in-law, and Myrna used to work in our office. So Can I go home? I, I hate these like sort of inside stories, but to give people color, uh, Myrna used to work in our office, so I know Myrna. Really well. So I go home, and a week later, I get the acceptance from the University of Illinois. Because Myrna told them what they had to do. And they got my I was able to get my master's degree. And my mentor was Tom Barber and Maureen Bassler, one of the great scientists in dentistry. So I learned a tremendous amount through those two people. They were great. And they were my mentors. Well, buddy, you talk about mentorship. And I don't think anyone has had a stronger mentor than I have had with you. And I talk about this all the time when I'm talking to young dentists. They, they have to find mentorship because... I think in dentistry, but probably in everything, you need someone to show you the way. I know well with my daughter in marketing, she has someone that she's mentoring from, right? You need people who've gone down the path before and help when you're going the wrong way on the path, which you did many times for me, you did you grab me by the ear and pull me on the right way in the path. You it's, need that. You got to yes, have that, right? It's very helpful. Maureen Masler, he's, he used to pull my cheek and he says, you got a real problem. He says, <laughs> you read, but you don't think. You got to think. And not everything you read is right. And remember that. And this is all scientific stuff he was talking about. He was a great teacher. I wrote my thesis under him and the remineralization of debt. And there, was a, and there was some really nice stuff in there. And it was well thought out. And it was because of him that I think really my I have the ability to read scientific literature and get the most out of what I read. He was wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But I know this goes a long way back, and this might put you sort of on the spot. When you came out of, out of school and you started practicing, what surprised you from going from like education, all right, I got my master's degree, I'm treating kids, but now I have to go out in private practice and do it. But to, do you remember like sort of, like I just, had, I just had a conversation with a young dentist who just graduated. He said, Dennis, I just, I've done 35 restorations in the month that I, since I graduated, which is way more than all the restorations I did while I was in dental school which obviously is not your situation because things were much different then. But what do, you, what do you remember about getting out into practice that was different than being in? Well, I've had so much experience by the time I got out into practice that it really, it was at, pretty seamless. Uh, even in graduate school. I was nine because we didn't get any money for graduate school. Right. Okay, I had to pay for graduate school. So I worked at nights part-time for dentists who had practices on the south side of Chicago. And my partner member, uh, Joe Moore, he and I worked together in, in an office on the south side. And eventually we opened our own practice on the south side. I had tremendous practices, okay? And so as a young dentist, it, the, the transition, it was, was difficult for me because I've been doing all this dentistry all the way along. The, the, the only thing was how to run a practice. And that wasn't really my forte, okay? Yep. Mm -hmm. My forte was being able to get people to accept treatment, to produce to make money, but I had other people around me who managed the practice and things of that nature. I was, I'm a great delegator, as you well know. Okay, yep. I didn't tackle things I really didn't know. You know, it's interesting. I think you bring up a good point. The fact that you were so strong in your restorative treatment, then your clinical skills, had allowed you to sort of concentrate on building your practice and stuff. And I think what's one of the big challenges for dentists today, the young dentists, is they do so little dentistry in school that the first years are really just trying to get the skills up, right? Get repetitions. Absolutely. Right. And so yeah. while a lot of people have issues with DSOs and where there's these programs or these, uh, these offices, 
where they say they're using dentists. Well, dentists are getting a lot of clinical experience that they're not getting in dental school these days. So I think that getting your chops, right? Doing a lot of restorative work is important and then growing from there to be able to figure out then how to talk to patients, how to manage your practice and all that type of stuff. Well, I think one of the shortcomings of education today, and I I mean this, is that there's so much emphasis on high tech and, and, and it reduces the emphasis on skill level. I think that the skill level is still the most important thing in dentistry. Yeah. And, that, and that enhances your ability to do everything, including diagnosis, treatment planning, and, and performing the, the, the dentistry that needs to be done. There's no doubt. And we talk about digital dentistry a lot these days. And the reality is, is if you don't have a good hands-on, if you, if you can't use your hands, it doesn't matter what you're designing digitally, because when you put that stuff in the mouth, oftentimes it needs to be reshaped, recontoured. And Absolutely. we're always going to have to be doing direct composites. I mean, I cannot imagine a world where there would be a time when we're going to have everything machined. So yeah. skipping over that, I think you're right. It's, and that's something that students have to, when they get out of dental school, they, they really got to sort of pick it up, which is actually my next question for you is, we have a lot of young dentists. We have dental students who are listening, a lot of young dentists. What advice would you give them as they're starting out into dentistry? What would you tell them that they should be thinking about when they're getting into dentistry? First of all, a lot of the younger dentists are getting into dentistry, but they're going into group practices. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, in, in that case, they had to think about how to increase their skill level. That's number one. Okay. I think that's an important aspect. And then they have to, first of all, with their treatment plans and things of that nature, they have to visualize what they're doing. I think, uh, for instance, if you're doing a smile design, you've got to be able to analyze a smile in an instant. Uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to analyze somebody's smile. But it, I think you have to look and see and try to develop the concept of what a smile, what it really entails. It's not that difficult. And then you've got to look and see where the defects are and which side of the mouth is more defective in relationship to the other side of the mouth. A lot of it, it does involve vision. I'm telling you right yeah. now. You got to be able to see it. As far as where they go from there, I would hope that to tell you the truth, a group practices are great, but for the young student coming out, I would hope that they'd have a, set their sights on developing their own practice and their own group to tell you the truth and, and maybe doing interrelated groups where you have an orthodontist and a general dentist and a pediatric dentist in that group setting where you combine all aspects of dentistry in one one group. I, yeah. I, I think that would be an interesting way to go. And I, I don't see a lot of that, a lot of groups like that. I think that's great advice. And so for those who are listening to this, watching this, I joined Buddy's practice in 1997. So Buddy, how, how long had you been up in Winnetka at that point? We opened up the Winnetka office in 1966. Okay. So you'd been there for 30 years, 30 plus. And the building that Buddy had built, there was an orthodontist in the suite next to Buddy. Buddy was doing- No, no, PD- no, no. We opened up in, in a different building. Right. 1966. Okay. But the orthodontist, uh, Bill Ford, had his own, he was in a a building that had a a house. They owned the building and next to it was a house. And I developed a relationship with Bill. And one day he came to me and he said, would you like to build an office with me? And I said, I certainly would. And uh, they bought him out of the building. Okay. Okay. And they gave him the land with the house. Ah, next to the building that you guys were right. going to build. Got and it. Bill came to us and said, will you build the building with us? And that's what we did. And we, we, we attached to the other building 
What year was that that you guys built that? Oh my God, that's got to be at least seventy. Okay, in the seventies. So that building though was what was nice was you walk in and immediately to the left was the orthodontist, and then you walk into the suite where you were doing your pediatric right. dentistry at the time. And then um, we had a, a periodontist down downstairs, which later became an endodontist office. Yeah, so it was really sort of a group practice right then. Yeah, really progressive for the time. I can't imagine there was a lot of people who were doing that because that was, I think, ahead of its time. Then, and it was very nice. And, and Bill was a good orthodontist. And his son came in after that. And he was he t- tremendous. And John's now retired. Somebody else is in there now. I sold the building to them when we went and we built a new or built our practice in, uh, in the Glen. So, buddy, a lot of people don't realize that you're a pediatric dentist. That's where you started out before you got into cosmetic yes. dentistry. So right. talk about that path. How did, how did you end up becoming one of the pioneers in cosmetic dentistry? How did that happen? Well, I did not like repairing eight-year-olds' fractured anterior teeth with crowns, uh-huh. okay? Stainless steel crowns, or were they plastic polycarbonate crowns? They could be crowns? Stanley crowns. They could even be uh, porcelain, porcelain crowns or something okay. like that, Okay. Mm-hmm. I did it any way I could do it. I did stainless steel crowns, open face. I did a lot of that stuff. Sure. I didn't like it. It's horrible. And so I heard about, from my friend Chuck Rosenbaum, I heard about a guy named Walter Doyle who did his thesis in acid etch technique. You know, Bornicari was the inventor of the acid right. etch technique. So I hadn't even heard of Bornicari at that time, but he did this. And I looked up his thesis and he did it with acid at Severtron, which is plastic material. It's awful. You cut it away, it smells like crazy. So I tried it and it worked. It wasn't great, but it worked. Then Chuck, uh, who's, who's a pediatric dentist, I don't know if Chuck's still alive. I think he is. He doesn't practice anymore, but he's in South Bend, Indiana. He told me about, he said, you got this stuff called Nuvenville. So he told me about it. So I got it and I started using it. And I did things with it that I could never believe. Okay. So this is like a this is like the very initial composites. These are big macro composites, right? That was that was light activated. That was light activated. That was light activated. Do you remember what year this was? Like around around seventy two. So back in seventy two. All right. Yeah. yeah. The Unicor stuff came out, I think, in the late 60s. And if anyone wants the article, I can I can make that article available yeah. when it talks about acid. I think it's like 72. So I did it, and I was doing fractured anteriors like it's going on stuff. The only thing I did different is I knew how to polish. Ah. If you, you read the old literature, you polish it with white stones and the only green stones. can't polish anything with those things. And so I knew how to polish from what I did. I went all the way down through fine cuddle. You couldn't get a great polish on it, but you got a hell of a lot better than anybody else could get. Mm. And I got great margination, and that's how I developed the use of, of the discs and things of that nature. And uh, it worked out. And then my mentor, or the, uh, Bill Ford, came over and says, can you fill some, close some diastema for me? I said, you can't do that, Bill. He says, yes, you can. So he persuaded me to do it. I did it at home with the new film, and it worked. And it was great. It's unbelievable. And that's very strong stuff, you know. It's okay. a macrofill right. deposit, very strong stuff. And it stayed there. And it looked pretty good. Then a young guy, I think it was in 80 or close 78 or 80, who was a dentist, came to me with the culture material, Durafil. And I always saw a detail man in my office because I knew I could always learn something from him. You always, you always saw who? Detail, guys who came through with new th- items oh, okay. and stuff like that. Like right. mm-hmm. 8392-016 Burr, 
Yep. I discovered that burr from brass or Larry Rhodes. I was the first one ever to use it. You know, I really yep. was. Okay. Right. So, right. so and I was from them. Okay. So I, I, I got this stuff and it blew me away. I thought it was great. So for those who don't know, so this Colzer that was the, that a, was the first microfilm. First microfilm. Colzer is a dental products company. Uh, the rep came by, said, you got to try this stuff. And so you take this microfilm and what was it about it that blew you away? Its polishability was unbelievable. Yeah. It's a little bit too translucent, but I still could make it work. And it was better than the, than the Numafil. Let me ask you a question, buddy. Did you, yeah. at that time, did you do layering where you would use the... Not, no, I went, at that time, the only thing I did with to make the, the uh, and this this is what, this is my concept, mm -hmm. is to get the opacity, is they did have some opaquers, and I used the opaquers in between layers to do that. Uh, so I did do some layering. So for those of you who are trying to imagine this, so Durafil is a very translucent microfill. And if you can imagine fixing a class four fracture, if you just use the Durafil, you'd see the fracture line between the two structure and the composite. So Buddy's telling me right now, and I'm hearing this for the first time back in 1980, he says, well, let me use some opaque or to block Even before, out that. I think it was before 80 because I wrote that, I wrote the book for them in 1980. So it probably was before. There you go. So in the, in the mid to late 70s, you're already opaquing that transition zone to block out the shine through. That's so right. you get the polishability on the surface, but you're not getting the shine through. So I was getting... I was getting Dang. a really good man with the use of the opakers and what they had. So, but I, we had all kinds of ideas. Okay. Right. Don't, you've never, no so hang on. I want to talk about that in a little bit. I don't jump ahead because yeah. I want to know. So we're talking about how you started getting into cosmetic dentistry. So you're treating these kids. Yeah. John Ford comes over. John Ford's dad comes over and says, yeah. buddy, I want you to close these spaces, do these diastomal closures. Now you're doing diastomal closures on these kids. You're doing class four fractures. You're fixing right. broken teeth. Saving people, saving these kids from having crowns on their teeth. You're doing peg laterals, I'm assuming. Yes. Right. All right. right. So you're treating kids. What I want to know about is when, how did you make that transition from treating kids to treating adults? What well, was that experience? The, the mothers would come through and they'd have a fractured tooth or something like that. I said, you like that tooth? <laughs> I said, I said, no. I said, well, why don't we fix it? So no way. I, yeah, that's right. That's what I did. <laughs> and so I did that. And then one thing led to another with cervical restorations and things of that nature. And I started working on adults. It just happened. It is one of those things. And I realized how great this was because I'm working with the microfill that nobody else was working with much very then, you know, and, and it was unbelievable. So, and I, and I saw the tissue response was so tremendous. I said, this is, this is great. And so I, that I took the risk, believe me, it's a big risk. Because I, I used to have dreams that I, I'd come to my office and there's lines around my block as long as I could see that everything fell off at one time. <laughs> but it didn't. It didn't. And I, <laughs> they call those nightmares. They don't call them dreams. They call those nightmares. <laughs> and I, I can appreciate that. I know what those nightmares are like. And it just blew me away. And that's, that's what happened. And I was such a believer in it. I just, as the more I did, the more I realized it. hey, this is the way to go. When in the community, so now, I mean, you're a pediatric dentist in the North Shore of Chicago. You're right. a pediatric dentist that are treating adults. Was there a pushback in the community? Did people no, actually, there really wasn't because nobody was doing this. I actually had general dentists referring patients with a minimal problem to me for this type of work. How about the rotated teeth on, on adults? 
How about that you could straighten out? How about diastema closure that, that you could do on adults? Nobody was doing that. So I, I had people sending it to me. So I never had a real, real, uh, nobody really uh, questioned me on that, you know? And, and for those who don't realize, back then, we weren't doing porcelain veneers at this point. Porcelain veneers were just maybe even in their infancy. But I don't think that, I'm, I'm trying to think, think back into the late 80s, buddy. That here's was, what happened. Porcelain veneers came on, and they came on strong. And it hurt bonding, composite resin, okay? Because, you know, durability was the thing, and they talked right. about the strength and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And so it sent back bonding a lot. Direct composite resin, a lot. Only I was really one of the only guys out there talking about direct composite resin. Right. Jerry Dennehy at the University yep. of Iowa was doing the same thing. Yep. And Norm Feigenbaum was pushing it, you know. And uh, there were a few of us, but very few. But over time, people realized how great, what an asset. I mean, it's it is today's restorative dental, dental material of choice is composite I, resin. That's it. I, I agree. And I think, unfortunately, I think there's uh, what's great is we're getting a lot of pushback and there are a lot of awesome, incredibly talented composite dentists. And so there is this huge pushback, and the, but there's still this struggle between porcelain and, and composite, but there's certainly a place for both of them. Both and, of them. Yep. And I think that's... And, and you know uh, that we had that in our practice. That's why I brought you into our practice was because I knew there was a place for both of them. I, I couldn't do the, the, the work that you did and I, I, I needed somebody to, to fill that area. And then you got involved with composite. And now you're the expert, and that, that's the thing. Blew me away. And for uh, those those who are still learning composites, I tell you, just stick with it because it's such an incredible material and the changes you can make for people and you can be minimally invasive. And that's the thing. That's um, the thing. You can be so minimally invasive with composite. It's just such an awesome material. And you have all the control. You have all, all the artistry. I mean, buddy, what what are your like top things about composites? What do you love about composites? Well, ultimate control is number one. It, right. It's the only material that you control that doesn't control you. Yeah. Think about that. You yeah. can place it, shape it, uh, add to it, take it, and you can add to it 15 years later. And, and, and with our material, like uh, our, our enamel system, our materials are all color stable and they, they match uh, 15, 20 years later. It's amazing stuff. And, and that's what's so wonderful about the whole thing. Yeah, I just, yeah. and, and the, the ability to do it minimally invasively and the ability to change, you can do anything. You can re-rotate teeth. You can reposition teeth. You can do resin retained ridges. You can close diastema. You can do full color changes. You think about it. Cervical restoration, it's the only way to reduce cervical respiration. Absolutely. Absolutely. The only way. Absolutely. It's so easy. It's so beautiful. You can't even find them. You don't even know you've done them. There's nothing else you can do that with. You know? I agree. Uh, the little pieces of porcelain to close the diastema. How screwy is that? This is so right. much easier and it lasts longer. And talk about durability. This stuff is durable and it is long lasting and it's unbelievable. I'm telling you. And, yep. and the other aspect of it, it is kinder to the general, to the general structures than any other material on the market. It's just amazing. Well, and I, I think especially when you're talking about the microfills and how, how those respond. Yes. Buddy, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a pause and because I want to take a deep dive into Cosmonet and I want to talk okay. about how you started Cosmonet <laughs> and all that. But I'd like to do that as a separate 
section so that people okay. can take a break. So we're going to take a break for a second, and then we're going to take a deep dive into, and I, I think these stories are so fascinating. I love hearing about putting your books together down in the basement, and <laughs> I'm in my basement right now. Um, I love these stories, and I want to ask you some questions about how you got Cosmodent going and some of the okay. things that you've learned along the way. But before we leave that, this section has been about sort of your experience as a dentist, and you practiced dentistry for a very long time. Um, how, how many years? 55, 55 years. 55 years. So where there's a lot of dentists who can't wait for the day for them to retire. Yeah. What what was it about dentistry that kept you going year after year that made that the, relationships such... with, the relationships with my patients, the work that I did that, that, that I knew made them so satisfied. I believe the satisfaction level is incredible. I've never... I experience it every day of my life that somebody comes up, like they say to you, you did my teeth or my kid's teeth 30 years ago. And they look at it and it's the same stuff that I used to say, I know it hasn't been touched. The ginger is incredible. And I know that I, I made a, I've impacted dentistry and it makes me feel good about myself. And, and I'm so happy for my patients. And I, I feel love and respect for my patients is a self-fulfilling thing that, that, that you'll never get any other. I don't think in any other profession. It's amazing to me. Yeah, it really I think, is. I think for mid-career dentists, they need to sort of listen to what you were just talking about and find a way to get that into. If they're not enjoying dentistry, they got to figure out how to get that in. I, I know so many people that hate not only dentists, but that hate what they do, and they, all they do is do it so they can retire. Well. Right. I, I had to quit at 80. You remember that. I developed yep. the central tremor, which I still since gotten rid of. I wish I was still in practice, to tell you the truth. I really enjoy it. And I, I love the contact, the relationship with people. And, and I love being able to create. And that's amazing stuff for anybody. You create some amazing stuff and I'm blessed because I get to see the stuff come in and I get to continue these relationships that you started with these patients over the years. And I'm, I'm so grateful and honored and just so lucky to sort of have been part of this practice and everything. Buddy, I want to um, end this portion. And so we're going to go to take a little break and then we're going to come back and do a deep dive into Cosmodent because that is so super cool and so different okay. from anything anyone's doing. So everyone will see you at the next episode. Until then, yours for better dentistry. I'm Dr. Dennis Hartley. We'll see you at the next Yearcast. Well, thanks so much for listening or viewing our Yearcast today. If you enjoyed this information, and you want to get more information from dental online training, then check us out at dothandson.com. That's one word, dothandson.com. Or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at HeartleyBBS. And be sure to share this with your friends and colleagues who you think might be able to get some great information from the Sharecast that we've shared with you today. Okay, until next time, I'm Dr. Dennis Hartlieb, yours for better dentistry.